Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome to the Head to Toe podcast as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham. I am the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Heritage Manager. And I'm Olivia Howarth and I'm a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. And today we've made it as far as the hands. When I was researching and thinking about hands, it reminded me quite a lot of noses. When we were talking about noses in a previous episode, we talked about the sort of Victorian hierarchy of senses, where in earlier times, perhaps the sense of smell was particularly sort of valued. And then that became viewed as a sort of lower sense. And the hands and touch are very, very similar. So touch at one point, an incredibly valued sense but it became viewed as more gauche, more inappropriate to touch and make physical contact. And so sight and sound became the more sort of higher senses, I suppose. Although having said that, thinking about the princess and the pea, the sensitivity of touch being a demonstration of how refined you are. is the thing, isn't there? You're judged on how many calluses you've got on your hands as a working person. But if you are a genteel lady that's supposed to be pale and delicate, like you've not worked today in your life. And you use all sorts of horrendous things to make your hands look like that, like lead or mercury or, or arsenic to give your hands a very pale, almost translucent look. You would use sort of horrendous things to get you there. But another thing that I found fascinating about the idea of, as you say, Olivia, calloused hands being a sign that you were sort of lower class or or not as refined, is there was an idea for quite a long time that that could be passed down through the generations. So it wasn't just that your hands got callous through hard work, but your grandfather's hands got callous through hard work, so your hands look callous too. So you could tell if someone was new money. As with many things, though, it is also quite gendered. It's particularly the case with women. The sign of success, both for you and for for your husband or your family, was that you had never worked a day in your life and you would never have to. And there's a definite growth in 1600s, probably, in sort of specialists who work on the hands, who will kind of specialise in hand care, you know, whether it's corn cutting or just the more refined beautifying of hands. So it becomes something that people are more and more aware of. Growth of the middle class, perhaps, because you weren't so rich that you couldn't work, but you wanted to look like you couldn't. You said corn cutting then. Yeah. I always think of corns as being on your feet. But did people get them on their hands? I think they used the term corn quite broadly. So they were called corn cutters. That was your kind of professional job title. But I think they probably dealt with warts and calluses and various different things. I think it's sort of, yeah, a term that encompassed many things. Mm. 
Are you left or right-handed, Olivia? Right-handed. See, I am left-handed. And so I know the perils of the left-handed. You weren't you weren't schooled into using your right hand. Right. No, I wasn't. But in the 1980s, there were still people who did get taught that. I did have friends who were kind of forced to write with their right hand, and it meant they had terrible handwriting. So it was still a concept that existed when I was a child. My partner's also left-handed, and there's lots of things that he does with his right hand, because that feels like it should be right-handed, as opposed to naturally doing it with his left. I, I'm I'm sort of the same. I, you know, I use my computer mouse with my right hand when I eat, you know, my knife and fork, I do it in sort of a right-handed way. So, so much of this comes back to historical ideas around left-handed and right-handed. And since the times of the ancients, the left hand being considered to be inferior and sometimes being considered to be evil in, in different cultures. The Latin term sinistra, the origin of the word sinister, meaning left. And so it becomes associated with evil and bad luck. The Latin word for right is dexter, so the origin of the word dexterity. And then right coming to mean right as in good, correct. So even though, at least in Western culture, the, the real sort of stereotypes around left-handed being evil being an indication that you are, you are a witch and, and that sort of thing goes out, some of the sort of ideas that left-handed is not as good or right, right, I can't stop saying correct. it, correct, <laughs> still fizzle around and, and remain. I was looking at handshaking, as in a handshake, and where that came from being a gesture of peacefulness. Funnily enough, right hand is the way to go, etiquette-wise, but it's to do with showing that you didn't have weapons, but also could be when you swear an oath or a bond, it's to symbolise a seal and a promise. The act of shaking it as well that's another thing so not just clasping someone's hand but shaking it up and down potentially comes from medieval europe and knights shaking someone's hand to make sure any loose weapons fell to the ground so probably the the biggest historical example or at least that i can think of of the hand in a medicinal sense is the royal touch or the king's touch so one of the things that i find fascinating about it is well first of all how long this lasts hundreds of years and that it is specifically a french and an english tradition as far as i'm aware not anywhere else but very popular in France and in England. And it is basically the idea that the king or, or the monarch, the laying on of their hands would cure their subject. The earlier versions have it curing them of a whole myriad of diseases, but then it becomes pretty much solely scrofula, which is known as the king's evil. And one of the arguments I read for why it becomes just scrofula, is scrofula is a disease which is relatively dramatic in appearance, but that will often very quickly dissipate by itself without any medicinal treatment. So it can give ah. the impression that it has been miraculously cured. If it's not something that's going to disappear, then it, then the whole argument falls apart quite quickly. It's all just a big publicity ploy. I mean, it very much is. The laying on of hands or the king's touch goes in and out of fashion with different monarchs, both in France and in England. And it does appear that... 
when it comes back, it comes back when there's a new monarch, when there's a new dynasty, or when that monarch is particularly controversial or unpopular. So it really is sort of a marketing ploy. A lot of monarchs are like, I'm already popular. I don't need this. Why would I bother? But then if Charles II comes back post Oliver Cromwell, he has, you know, a reason to want to use the king's touch. I did read that in general, French monarchs touched more people than English monarchs, apart from Charles II, possibly because he was trying to be popular. The figure that I found quoted that he touched over 92,000 scrofulous people. And it's interesting because it's very difficult to know the motives of all the people involved. So on the one hand, you could certainly argue that it's a huge process receiving the king's touch. Assuming that you don't live in London, you've got to get a certificate from your local church minister or priest saying that you have scrofula and that you have not previously received the king's touch. You then have to travel to London, which obviously can take a very long time. You then have to wait there to be seen by the king's surgeons and you could be waiting for weeks sometimes even months so that they can inspect you to determine whether you have scrofula or not and then you get to be in the presence of the king so this is a process that almost certainly will take months and months do they really really believe that this works or are they so in awe of of the king that they just want to be in his presence but also on the other hand you do get some gold. You're not just being touched by the king, you're also getting a gold medal. Oh, they're in it for the souvenirs. If you're incredibly poor, this is probably the only time in your entire life when you're going to get some gold. So, you know, you could take it as thinking people really believe in this treatment or they really, really believe in the king and his almighty greatness, or at least some of them want, want some money. The gold coin is known as an angel and you were supposed to pierce it and hang it around your neck. There's a sort of, you know, this treatment will only work if you keep wearing it for a a certain amount of time and not if you just take it and sell it. And the overarching idea of it all really was mirroring some actions in the Bible, you know, the way that, that Jesus Christ would heal people, they were also healing people. But the argument was that they, they were not setting themselves up to be like Christ. They were the vessel. So they are gods appointed on earth. And this whole process, this whole performance is part of that. So that's sort of how it reasserts their authority. You'd also read that it was normally between Michaelmas and Easter, when it was really cold, potentially you're less likely to contract the disease when it's cold. Or the king would be less likely. I mean, that would would absolutely make sense because there is a risk involved, of course, (laughs) of choosing to lay on the hands. So yeah, someone like Charles II weighs up the pros and cons and goes, overall, it's worth it. The other thing that I was thinking about was, of course, hand washing being a hugely important part of medicine. So I'm guessing you may have heard of Semmelweis, Olivia. Mm -hmm. So picture the scene. 1840s Austria. I can't describe to you what that was like because I don't know, but try and picture it anyway. Okay. 1840s Austria and Semmelweis, who's a physician, the hospital that he is working in has two separate maternity wards, one which is staffed by male physicians 
and the other which is staffed by female midwives. And Semmelweis notices that the mortality rate on the male staffed wards is much higher. And he has a bunch of different hypotheses as to why this is the case. One of his theories was that if you were being treated by a man, you would be more likely to be nervous or uncomfortable. Perhaps you would lie differently during birth because you would be awkward. Or perhaps if you had any pain or any problems, you wouldn't tell him, whereas you would tell a woman, because of the sort of social conventions at the time. So he has lots of different theories that he tests out, but it turns out to be that the male doctors are carrying out post-mortems, examining cadavers, and then not washing their hands before they assist women in childbirth. So he tested his hypothesis by having the doctors wash their hands, not just with soap, but with a sort of chlorine solution, and the death rate absolutely plummeted. But his findings were roundly rejected, first by the Vienna Medical School, and then he worked elsewhere. He wrote articles, he published a book, and he did not manage to convince people or not enough people to make any sort of difference. There's a few different versions as to what happened next. I think the most popular version or, or the most talked about version is they had a breakdown and ended up in a mental institution. A sad ending to that story. He was too soon, uh, unfortunately. Ahead of his time. Germ theory, when it comes, and also Semmelweis in his sort of earlier demonstrations, really shifts the notion of what being clean means. Because up until then, you look at your hands and go, well, there's nothing visible on my hands, so my hands are clean. Whereas later, we have a much more microscopic definition of cleanliness. And people are just offended, I think, just being told that you're not clean. People don't just go, oh, I don't agree with you, in the way that a lot of medical and scientific theories are bandied around at this point, and people disagree with each other. The reaction to Semmelweis is something else. It's more extreme. And I think it is that it sort of offends them to their very core, almost. Typhoid Mary had that, didn't she? She was just utterly disbelieving that she could possibly be the cause. Yes, there, there are some scientific theories or, or scientific understanding which questions society in a, a really fundamental way, which is different from, oh, I've discovered a new medicine. You are fundamentally changing how I view myself and the people around me. In our case study today, we're going to talk about the medical touch. There's been a lot of research by historians in the last few years about different types of sensory history. Sight, sound, smell in history, and of course, touch. And this takes all sorts of forms. Looking at the role of touch in scientific discoveries, its role in carrying out cures, and how touch was sometimes viewed as one of the low senses, alongside taste and smell, while hearing, in the form of music, and sight when looking at art, were seen as more refined senses. As middle-class bodies became more regimented, in first Georgian and then Victorian Europe, touch became increasingly frowned upon. The bodies of the poor were seen as more uncontrolled, more tactile, and forced into more cramped living conditions, which forced contact. By contrast, the middle-class body increasingly adopted manners which reduced contact, combined with the increased wearing of gloves, this placed the individual at a distance from those around them. Touch, or the lack of touch, became a mark of civilization. But what we're particularly going to look at here is the role of touch in the process of diagnosis. In the 1700s, physicians were limited in terms of how they could examine their patients, restricted by society's ideas about what was modest or proper. 
The physician was also viewed as a thinker, not a toucher, someone whose job was to analyse and deduce, not to get their hands dirty. The hands-on work was the role of the surgeon, while the gentleman physician used his mind instead. And there are a few big examples of the problems with this approach, including the failure in the 1770s of physicians to identify the abdominal cancer of the philosopher David Hume, his condition remaining undiagnosed until Hume was visited by a surgeon, John Hunter, who was more willing to perform a physical examination. This division began to break down during the 1700s, and physicians began to carry out more detailed physical examinations of their patients, including identifying tumours by feel and examination of the genitals to identify venereal complaints. In the 1750s, the Austrian physician Leopold Aunbrugger developed percussive or sounding techniques which involved tapping on the chest to assess the condition of underlying tissue and body parts. This could identify important signs in a number of diseases, including consumption. Advances such as this related directly to internal medicine, the remit of physicians, and so encouraged increasing use of physical examination techniques. This short clip is taken from a talk by Sophie Goggins, Senior Curator of Biomedical Science at National Museum Scotland. Professor David Simpson was a medical physicist who was born in Edinburgh in 1920. He started designing equipment which monitored transplant patients' condition during surgery at the Royal Infirmary and the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. He went on to design the first successful fetal heart rate monitor, which in terms of a CV is pretty good. At about this time in his career, uh, in the early 1950s, uh, a German pharmaceutical company was looking to expand into new drugs. The company developed a drug which had the side effect of making patients relaxed and inducing sleep. The drug then went to market under the name of Distaval. Advertisements for Distaval, like this one, exalted its non-toxic nature, and it was targeted not only at the young, but also pregnant women to treat morning sickness. Distaval is, of course, for all of you who are familiar with Call the Midwife or any kind of medical history, is the brand name for thalidomide. When taken in the first three months of pregnancy, thalidomide is responsible for a range of disabilities, most commonly the absence, the absence or shortening of limbs, and the malformation of hands and feet. So this advertisement ran in the BMJ in 1960, and the drug was formally withdrawn in the United Kingdom in 1961, just a year later. So it was due to this strategy and under immense media attention that David Simpson became the director of the Powered Prosthetics Unit in Edinburgh at the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital. His, ta his task was to design prosthetics which could be used by children affected by thalidomide, in particular um, a focus on upper limb prosthetics. The unit began designing in a workshop basement in George Square, close by to the Royal Infirmary, but moved in 1965 to this site, the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital, to be closer to the children they were working with. By the end of 1965, the unit was serving 60 children from across Scotland and Northern Ireland. Designing prosthetics is a difficult enough engineering problem, but designing prosthetic solutions for children adds another layer of complexity. The prosthetics didn't just need to function, they needed to be intuitive, and because they were small children, and for any of you that have small children in your life, they needed to be very robust. Simpson and his colleagues began to design gas-powered limbs for children in Scotland and Northern Ireland. 
Their main aim was to make the limbs user-controlled, which allowed the children to use the prosthetics without any aid. The example on the right was the final version of the Simpsons series One Arm, created in 1965. The arm was self-leveling, which meant that it would be possible to lift a spoon with liquid to your mouth without spilling, important for users to be able to feed themselves. Interestingly, Simpson's work was unpatented, and thus it was free for any hospital in the world to use. Simpson and his colleagues began to fit these extraordinary arms, which were CO2-powered. At the time, it was marveled that these gas canisters were no longer than a candle and weighed only roughly half a pound. Now, I just want you to take a moment and look at the Allen on the left-hand side. So a gas canister, only half a pound, but for a child that small. But this was only series one. One of Simpson's main strategies was that when a new design and prototype was complete and had gone through laboratory testing, it was immediately fitted to children to use and test. One of these children was Alan, who you met earlier. Born in Glasgow without upper limbs and with small lower limbs, Alan visited the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital multiple times a year, and the experience formed a large proportion of his childhood. In his own words, when the arms were being made and fitted around us, like a made-to-measure suit, we would have to spend any time away from our families, where we would spend anything from three to six weeks on our own in the self-care unit. These younger users in the self-care unit would be there for at least a month to learn to use their new prosthetics. And after the first fitting, it sometimes was slightly shorter, but often with a new prosthetic, users would be there weeks spending hours moving objects like bricks to get the hang of movement. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Hands could cure through the medium of touch, and hands themselves could become diseased. But while the power of touch was seen as a powerful treatment for the king's evil, or scrofula, there were plenty of other treatments as well. One recipe for the king's evil, dating from 1785, recommends, quote, Mice roasted and eaten by children is very good. Then let their heads become full of lice, until the scabs appear large, so they may run a little. Another recipe book from earlier that century is very similar. Quote, Suffer the child's head to become lousy, till all the head becomes scabbed and running. Complaints of the hands were very common at a time when so many were carrying out manual work of one sort or another, and so recipe books are filled with treatments for burns, cuts, scrapes and bruises. One recipe from the 1731 text, Poor Man's Physician, recommends for swellings of the back of the hand, quote, A plate of lead smeared over with quicksilver, laid on the hand for eight days or more. Quicksilver, by the way, is mercury. Having myself read hundreds, possibly thousands, of medical recipes, I can say with confidence that this next one is my favourite. It is a treatment dating from 1731 for a whitlow or infection in the tip of the finger. Quote, Stop the finger into a cat's ear, and it will be whole within a quarter of an hour. Another common complaint of the hand was warts. Folklore is filled with theories on the causes of warts and the best ways to treat them. Killing a toad was thought to be one cause, as well as contact with animals, particularly cows and chickens. 
According to folklore, warts could be cured by transference, by natural remedies, and by rituals and prayers. Transference involved passing the wart onto another person or an inanimate object. One option was to fill a bag with as many pebbles as you had warts, then toss the bag over your shoulder. Your warts would be transferred to whoever picked up the bag. Recipes for the treatment of warts were usually particularly disgusting, including pig's blood, spittle and fish heads. And if those didn't work, you could try rubbing your wart with a potato which you then buried, or washing your hands in moonbeams in an otherwise empty bowl. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, click like, or leave a positive review or comment. We really appreciate it because it helps us get higher in the rankings and reach more people. Thank you.